Hi, this is Tony, talking to you guys from the dark northeast piney woods of Texas. What was it really like being a mountain man in the year of 1800s? Well, you can picture a man with a long grizzled beard, tough features on his face, thick, bushy eyebrows, and a fur cap staring directly into the woods. Tough, resilient, determined, adventurous. They are just some of the words used to describe the mountain men who rambled all over the Rocky Mountains, but also eastern parts of early America as far back as the 1500s. By the early 1800s, says a book, Legends of America, Joseph Dixon became one of the first known mountain men when he traveled alongside explorers Meriwether Lewis and William Clark on the Missouri River. Dixon and others like him literally made the wilderness their home embracing the seasons as their time clock and living off the land as they made their way through the mountains. The life could be harsh, even brutal, but somehow many of these men prevailed. If the idea of fellow hunkered down dressed in animal skins while living out of the makeshift shelter and cooking meat over a fire sounds romantic, well, in a way it was. He were the American original survivalists who were fiercely independent also lived a fairly solid what was it like in that time well we've seen movies like the 1972 Jeremiah Johnson who created the ideal mountain man in our minds but what was it really like to live through harrowing snowstorms high desert heat and the knowledge that one small mistake could cost one's life. Let's really find out how the mountain man lived. In the 1980s, Bill Tyler, played by Charlton Heston, the mountain man, says to Henry Frapp, I heard you got it on the money, end of the miserable business. Frapp replies, yep packed in supplies, watered down the whiskey, jacked up the prices, and went to trading for beaver. Tyler asks, how'd you do? Frapp answers, I lost my hindquarters. Even those trappers working for one of the several fur companies found making money was tough, even grueling work. But the way Homestead explains it, mountain men experienced a freedom like no other, living out their passion in the heart of Mother Nature's bounty. The woods were their workplace, and there were no rules to follow except their own. Adventure, but also peril, lay around every corner. During the 1800s, animal pelts, especially beaver, were highly sought after in the American Western Europe. Because of this, explains the National Cowboy Museum, early mountain men had the freedom of hunting game wherever and whenever they wanted. 
trading with both Anglos and Native Americans for money or the things they needed to survive. The mountain men could find companionship at the annual rendezvous at which other fur trappers, traders, and natives gathered to celebrate, feast, trade, and perhaps even find a wife. The rendezvous gave the men a needed break from their loneliness out on the trails. A national museum explains that the mountain men actually played the integral part in the development of the American West, namely contributing to westward expansion. In Europe, beaver felt hats were all the rage as early as the 1600s, as well as mink, fox, marten, and other furs. Their pelts and skins were sold in America, but also in Europe, guaranteeing amicable relations between mountain men and the businessmen. They became experts at trading with the learning about Native Americans and their way of life. In turn, says a Montana trapper, the Native culture developed as indigenous people received not just furs, but also manufactured tools and weapons, as well as tobacco, liquor, glass beads, and clothing. There was another reason why mountain men were important to the development of the West. The trails they discovered. History on the net explains that it was these men who forged their way over mountain passes and knew which trails were safe and which ones were posed with danger. According to an atlas, trappers also learned the animal trails, mapped important streams and rivers, and noted where feed for livestock and horses was at. They also learned which native tribes were most dangerous, as well as which ones were friendly and open to trade. In later years, the men's trails were used by immigrants coming west. A successful mountain man carries plenty of provisions so he could live out just about anywhere on, on his travels. The best equipped of these, says, used at least one, but as many as two to three horses to carry such essentials as an axe, a well-sharpened hatchet, a more sharpened skinning knife, traps, cookware, flint to start fires, blankets, coffee, flour, and about a bag-type water container. Since few mountain men were able to purchase bullets, they also carried bullet molds, gunpowder, and lead. Those with money and other valuables kept them in a poke or a sack. The lonely winter could be a man's worst enemy. It was important to stock up extra food for the winter months. Failure to do so could result in subsisting on roots and even mule or horse meat. Can you imagine eating your mule? Some mountain men wisely chose to winter at a small variety of forts across the west. The fur trapper cites Fort Henry in North Dakota as being the first American post west of the continental divide. In summer, the nearby Snake River provided beaver and fish, but winters controlled the brutal aspect of the element. An author by the name of Janet Lecomte wrote that while some men spent their winters at Ben's Fort, along the Santa Fe Trail, negotiations with Kiowa and Comanche tribes could prove difficult. Frontiersmen Uncle Dick Wooten remembered one winter where the men were confined to the inside of the fort due to unfriendly natives.
following winter, a mountain man embraced the spring thaw and began trapping season proper. A typical day began with a breakfast made with whatever was on hand. Some men made buddens, a sausage made from the intestines of their keel. Alternatively, pemmican was a dry combination of meat and fruit, wild potatoes and grass, hard crackers, and coffee or tea made from shavings of Chinese tea blocks completed the meal. The rest of the day, according to uh, a well-known publicist, was spent maintaining camp, cleaning or repairing the guns, mending or making clothing, harvesting kills and drying out pelts. Come evening, the men prepared their campfire, checked their traps again and prepared their dinner. If they caught a beaver, they might make a soup out of the tail. Extra meat was made into jerky, says a, a recipe of a book in the Civil War, by adding salt and spices to raw game and hanging it over a small fire to dry. No spices? Bison dung on the fire was said to add a peppery flavor to the meat. An Arizonan historian writes that because food could be scarce, many trappers were known to eat four or five pounds of meat at a sitting. If there was no meat, the man might resort to eating ants or crickets. Some even had to soak their moccasins in water and eat them if no other food was available. Mountain men began the spring season of fur trapping at points where the ice had melted in the streams. Then they slowly followed the thaw through summer, working their way to higher elevations. In the Rocky Mountains, that could mean trekking as high as 14,000 feet up the mountainside. Osborne Russell says or guessed that the, the average trapper carried six traps. These uh, explains homestead were made from steel weighing three and a half pounds were attached to a tree root or a rod hammered into the ground. Essential for catching beaver was a special bait made with pulverized nutmeg, clove, cinnamon, and the secretion of castor glands found in the beaver. Today the secretion is still used in certain medicines and perfumes. Once the traps were set, according to the fur trapper guide, they were checked once in the morning and once in the night. A magazine about fish and wildlife explains the dead game was then dusted or washed free of dirt and grass if needed, dried as much as possible and then skinned on site. Next came fleshing the fur, process of removing any extra meat that could spoil the pelt. The pelt was then attached to a hoop and left to dry, stretched out, usually for several days. The average pelt weighed about one and a half pounds and the standard beaver pack weighed some 90 pounds by the time a trapper took his haul in for the trading. Early on, mountain men in the wilderness encountered unfriendly tribes who resented their presence. Homestead sees some of the earliest attacks being made by Blackfoot and Comanche tribes. In time, however, both sides found that they shared a common bond. 
the love of trading, especially at the annual rendezvous of the early 1800s, says a Hobble Creek mountain man could actually buy or trade furs from the natives, offering them goods in exchange. The men also appreciated the native ways and customs because they could learn additional needed survival skills. A history uh, professor confirms that some mountain men were quite welcome and at home living among tribes. Doing so and learning their language only increased friendly communications between the two. Before long, fur companies saw the benefits of good relationships between mountain men and Native Americans. Some says the fur trapper hired trappers specifically to work with the natives. The trouble was that certain tribes, namely the Arikara, Blackfeet, and Sioux, strongly objected to Americans trading with their enemies, especially when it came to firearms. The Arikara, in particular, served as a middle ground tribe on the plains. Because of this, mountains well, because of this, excuse me, maintains U.S. history relationships between the mountain men and the natives remained tentative at best. Some Anglos made their way home among the tribes, while others gained fame for the number of Indians they killed. In the early years of the fur trade, says a Rocky Mountain uh, magazine, trappers and mountain men spent part of the year transporting their furs all the way back to St. Louis to sell their harvest and buy needed supplies for the next trapping season. Beginning in 1825, however, the men found it easier and often more profitable to stage an annual gathering in the West. The majority of these rendezvous occurred in Wyoming, says a uh, history uh, professor of Wyoming, with the first event taking place at Henry's Fort. Traders from the Missouri area, says Legends of America, could haul supplies over the rendezvous instead of the instead and trade with everyone at once. History Colorado confirms that furs and pelts quickly expanded to include bear, deer, muskrat, otter, raccoon, wolf hides, as well as the bison hides. But beaver pelts says the White Oak Historical Society remained the most popular. Equally important was the social aspect of the annual rendezvous where the men could blow off some steam after spending so much time alone. Some of those in the tens litter wrote that participants drank themselves silly, swapped stories, sang and danced, gambled, raced horses, practiced target shooting and more while bargaining for needed supplies. Naturally, they also traded for Native Americans, sometimes taking Native Americans as their wives. There were very good reasons for a mountain man to take a native wife. A history uh, of the gentle dove explains that the women knew all about living in the wilderness, from breaking horses to camp duties to using weapons. An Anglo husband inherited his native wife's relatives, enabling him to establish further trade with his son-in-laws and his in-laws. Displays at the San Bernardino County Museum in California confirms that there were very few Anglo women during the fur trade era. Referred to as tender exotics in the early West, white women were usually married to fur company managers. Of those mountain men who took a wife, nearly half of them 
were with Indian or mixed-blood women. These unions help both Anglos and Natives learn each other's language and customs. To the Natives, the marriage of their women of, to Anglos was ideal. They felt that marriage created a social bond which served to consolidate economic relationships with traders. Native Americans were already along accustomed to lending or trading their wives and daughters to Anglos for sex in exchange for goods, an ideal situation to all parties involved. But marriage secured an ongoing relationship whereas all parties, including the women, benefited from their union. Some tribes, such as the Cree, were in the habit of reserving their daughters, especially for marriage to a trader. Not surprisingly, some of the most famous mountain men in America had Native American wives. There was a Smithsonian verification that Kit Carson's first two wives, for instance, were an Arapaho woman, and a Wanabi, and a Cheyenne woman named Making Out Road. In the historical documents, Carson, as having learned several native languages, was cited. He also served as a guide, made numerous excursions across the mountains of the Rockies, and served in the military. Even more colorful to historians today was Hugh Glass, whose amazing survival of the Wicked Bear attack, portrayed by actor Leonardo DiCaprio in the 2015 movie The Revenant. Lesser known but equally important mountain men included Rocky Mountain Jim Nugent, a colorful mountain guide in Estes Park, Colorado who also survived a bear attack but was eventually shot by his rival. Notably too is one of the very few mountain women, Mary Dorian. Uh, she survived the death of her fur trader, trader husband, spent a winter traveling 250 miles across the Blue Mountains with their two young sons and eventually settled down in the Columbia River area of Oregon where she remarried and had more children. Her ancestors actually settled in the Willamette Valley. Of all the mountain men who scrambled around the wilderness in the 1800s, the honor of being the very first goes to Jim Coulter. Jim Coulter uh, writes the Virginian, he was a Virginian-born trapper, enlisted with the Lewis and Clark expedition in the 1803s. And just for five dollars per day per month, he quickly became known for his hunting and scouting skills. Getting paid five dollars a month for scouting, and he was the best. At the end of the expedition, the Virginia Argus would later report that Coulter was awarded 1,600 acres for his work, but wasn't quite ready to settle down. Instead, he joined up with the trappers Forrest Hancock and Joseph Dixon and headed further west. Eventually, Coulter worked as a guide for the Missouri Fur Company. He is guessed to have rode alone over the estimated 500 miles in search of a Native American camps and as he spread the news of available trade, uh, a book states that in 1807, Coulter was the first Anglo man to see today's Yellowstone National Park. But his descriptions of the geothermic wonders were so vivid that few believed him. According to uh, an article in the Grand Teton, the story that Coulter's friends called his imaginary place Coulter's Hell is false. 
That term was actually applied to an area along the Shoshone River near Cody, Wyoming, not Yellowstone. Coulter eventually married, had a son, and bought a farm in Missouri, dying in the year of 1813. The conclusion of the fur trade era is attributed to three major events. A serious decline in the fur-bearing animal population, poisonous chemicals which made making beaver felt hats unhealthy, and uh, England's Prince Albert switching to wearing silk hats. Bear Lake Rendezvous also submits that killing an animal for fur became less politically correct. By 1840, says Northwest Power and Conservative Council, the fur trade was officially declining. Between 1841 and 1845, the Bay Company, for example, took in a roughly half of the number of furs the firm had normally purchased in years past. The Bay Company eventually turned to other industries such as lumber and agriculture. Other companies such as the American Fur Company, says Legends of America, went broke. Worse off were the Native Americans who were plunged into long-term poverty and consequently uh, lost much of the political influence they had once had. When traveler Rufus Sage visited Colorado's Middle Park in 1842, says a history guide, he observed there was almost no hunting activity there. Montana Trappers verifies that almost all fur trading activities had ceased by the year of 1870. The fur trade is dead in the Rocky Mountains. Mountain man Robert Newell told his colleague, Jim Bridger, and it is no place for us now, if ever it was. With the end of the fur trade, mountain men were caught in a quandary. According to a magazine, what would they do for a living? The last annual rendezvous took place in 1840. And it was just around the corner as two international treaties in 1846 and the year 1848 gave the United States official ownership of the Pacific Coast. Who better to lead immigrants west than the very men who established the trails leading there? Many mountain men, according to the history of, on the net, found new jobs serving as guides, not just as folks headed west, but also as military. After all, the men knew the best routes, where the rivers were, and the locations of unfriendly natives. Another saving grace for the mountain men seeking new jobs was the gold rush of California, 1848. History credits the discovery of the gold in the Sacramento Valley as being arguably one of the most significant events to shape American history during the first half of the 19th century. Many a mountain men were uh, trying their luck, panning for gold or working in one of the larger mines. The quest for gold soon spread all over the West, according to the Pagosa Springs Journal in the Colorado area. With mountain men turning to the prospecting and to making their way to success panning for gold, their memory was not quite faded. However, today numerous mountain men rendezvous across the West keep the history of our illustrious mountain men alive. Well, that's a little story about the mountain men, and next time we'll probably find another story concerning the mountain men. Thank you and take care.
Hi, this is Tony, talking to you guys from the dark northeast piney woods of Texas. What was it really like being a mountain man in the year of 1800s? Well, you can picture a man with a long grizzled beard, tough features on his face, thick, bushy eyebrows, and a fur cap staring directly into the woods. Tough, resilient, determined, adventurous. They are just some of the words used to describe the mountain men who rambled all over the Rocky Mountains, but also eastern parts of early America as far back as the 1500s. By the early 1800s, says a book, Legends of America, Joseph Dixon became one of the first known mountain men when he traveled alongside explorers Meriwether Lewis and William Clark on the Missouri River. Dixon and others like him literally made the wilderness their home embracing the seasons as their time clock and living off the land as they made their way through the mountains. The life could be harsh, even brutal, but somehow many of these men prevailed. If the idea of fellow hunkered down dressed in animal skins while living out of the makeshift shelter and cooking meat over a fire sounds romantic, well, in a way it was. He were the American original survivalists who were fiercely independent also lived a fairly solid what was it like in that time well we've seen movies like the 1972 Jeremiah Johnson who created the ideal mountain man in our minds but what was it really like to live through harrowing snowstorms high desert heat and the knowledge that one small mistake could cost one's life. Let's really find out how the mountain man lived. In the 1980s, Bill Tyler, played by Charlton Heston, the mountain man, says to Henry Frapp, I heard you got it on the money, end of the miserable business. Frapp replies, yep packed in supplies, watered down the whiskey, jacked up the prices and went to trading for beaver. Tyler asks, how'd you do? Frapp answers, I lost my hindquarters. Even those trappers working for one of the several fur companies found making money was tough, even grueling work. But the way Homestead explains it, mountain men experienced a freedom like no other, living out their passion in the heart of Mother Nature's bounty. The woods were their workplace, and there were no rules to follow except their own. Adventure, but also peril, lay around every corner. During the 1800s, animal pelts, especially beaver, were highly sought after in the American Western Europe. Because of this, explains the National Cowboy Museum, early mountain men had the freedom of hunting game wherever and whenever they wanted. 
trading with both Anglos and Native Americans for money or the things they needed to survive. The mountain men could find companionship at the annual rendezvous at which other fur trappers, traders, and natives gathered to celebrate, feast, trade, and perhaps even find a wife. The rendezvous gave the men a needed break from their loneliness out on the trails. A national museum explains that the mountain men actually played the integral part in the development of the American West, namely contributing to westward expansion. In Europe, beaver felt hats were all the rage as early as the 1600s, as well as mink, fox, marten, and other furs. Their pelts and skins were sold in America, but also in Europe, guaranteeing amicable relations between mountain men and the businessmen. They became experts at trading with the learning about Native Americans and their way of life. In turn, says a Montana trapper, the Native culture developed as indigenous people received not just furs, but also manufactured tools and weapons, as well as tobacco, liquor, glass beads, and clothing. There was another reason why mountain men were important to the development of the West. The trails they discovered. History on the net explains that it was these men who forged their way over mountain passes and knew which trails were safe and which ones were posed with danger. According to an atlas, trappers also learned the animal trails, mapped important streams and rivers, and noted where feed for livestock and horses was ample. They also learned which native tribes were most dangerous, as well as which ones were friendly and open to trade. In later years, the men's trails were used by immigrants coming west. A successful mountain man carries plenty of provisions so he could live out just about anywhere on, on his travels. The best equipped of these, says, used at least one, but as many as two to three horses to carry such essentials as an axe, a well-sharpened hatchet, a more sharpened skinning knife, traps, cookware, flint to start fires, blankets, coffee, flour, and about a bag-type water container. Since few mountain men were able to purchase bullets, they also carried bullet molds, gunpowder, and lead. Those with money and other valuables kept them in a poke or a sack. The lonely winter could be a man's worst enemy. It was important to stock up extra food for the winter months. Failure to do so could result in subsisting on roots and even mule or horse meat. Can you imagine eating your mule? Some mountain men wisely chose to winter at a small variety of forts across the west. The fur trapper cites Fort Henry in North Dakota as being the first American post west of the continental divide. In summer, the nearby Snake River provided beaver and fish, but winters controlled the brutal aspect of the element. An author by the name of Janet Lecomte wrote that while some men spent their winters at Ben's Fort, along the Santa Fe Trail, negotiations with Kiowa and Comanche tribes could prove difficult. Frontiersmen Uncle Dick Wooten remembered one winter where the men were confined to the inside of the fort due to unfriendly natives.
following winter, a mountain man embraced the spring thaw and began trapping season proper. A typical day began with a breakfast made with whatever was on hand. Some men made buddens, a sausage made from the intestines of their keel. Alternatively, pemmican was a dry combination of meat and fruit, wild potatoes and grass, hard crackers, and coffee or tea made from shavings of Chinese tea blocks completed the meal. The rest of the day, according to uh, a well-known publicist, was spent maintaining camp, cleaning or repairing the guns, mending or making clothing, harvesting kills and drying out pelts. Come evening, the men prepared their campfire, checked their traps again and prepared their dinner. If they caught a beaver, they might make a soup out of the tail. Extra meat was made into jerky, says a, a recipe of a book in the Civil War by adding salt and spices to raw game and hanging it over a small fire to dry. No spices? Bison dung on the fire was said to add a peppery flavor to the meat. An Arizonan historian writes that because food could be scarce, many trappers were known to eat four or five pounds of meat at a sitting. If there was no meat, the man might resort to eating ants or crickets. Some even had to soak their moccasins in water and eat them if no other food was available. Mountain men began the spring season of fur trapping at points where the ice had melted in the streams. Then they slowly followed the thaw through summer, working their way to higher elevations. In the Rocky Mountains, that could mean trekking as high as 14,000 feet up the mountainside. Osborne Russell says or guessed that the, the average trapper carried six traps. These uh, explains homestead were made from steel weighing three and a half pounds were attached to a tree root or a rod hammered into the ground. Essential for catching beaver was a special bait made with pulverized nutmeg, clove, cinnamon, and the secretion of castor glands found in the beaver. Today the secretion is still used in certain medicines and perfumes. Once the traps were set, according to the fur trapper guide, they were checked once in the morning and once in the night. A magazine about fish and wildlife explains the dead game was then dusted or washed free of dirt and grass if needed, dried as much as possible and then skinned on site. Next came fleshing the fur, process of removing any extra meat that could spoil the pelt. The pelt was then attached to a hoop and left to dry, stretched out, usually for several days. The average pelt weighed about one and a half pounds and the standard beaver pack weighed some 90 pounds by the time a trapper took his haul in for the trading. Early on, mountain men in the wilderness encountered unfriendly tribes who resented their presence. Homestead cities, some of the earliest attacks being made by Blackfoot and Comanche tribes. In time, however, both sides found that they shared a common bond. 
the love of trading, especially at the annual rendezvous of the early 1800s, says a Hobble Creek mountain man could actually buy or trade furs from the natives, offering them goods in exchange. The men also appreciated the native ways and customs because they could learn additional needed survival skills. A history uh, professor confirms that some mountain men were quite welcome and at home living among tribes. Doing so and learning their language only increased friendly communications between the two. Before long, fur companies saw the benefits of good relationships between mountain men and Native Americans. Some says the fur trapper hired trappers specifically to work with the natives. The trouble was that certain tribes, namely the Arikara, Blackfeet, and Sioux, strongly objected to Americans trading with their enemies, especially when it came to firearms. The Arikara, in particular, served as a middle ground tribe on the plains. Because of this, mountains well, because of this, excuse me, maintains U.S. history relationships between the mountain men and the natives remained tentative at best. Some Anglos made their way home among the tribes, while others gained fame for the number of Indians they killed. In the early years of the fur trade, says a Rocky Mountain uh, magazine, trappers and mountain men spent part of the year transporting their furs all the way back to St. Louis to sell their harvest and buy needed supplies for the next trapping season. Beginning in 1825, however, the men found it easier and often more profitable to stage an annual gathering in the West. The majority of these rendezvous occurred in Wyoming, says a uh, history uh, professor of Wyoming, with the first event taking place at Henry's Fort. Traders from the Missouri area, says Legends of America, could haul supplies over the rendezvous instead of instead and trade with everyone at once. History Colorado confirms that furs and pelts quickly expanded to include bear, deer, muskrat, otter, raccoon, wolf hides, as well as the bison hides. But beaver pelts says the White Oak Historical Society remained the most popular. Equally important was the social aspect of the annual rendezvous where the men could blow off some steam after spending so much time alone. Some of those in the tens litter wrote that participants drank themselves silly, swapped stories, sang and danced, gambled, raced horses, practiced target shooting and more while bargaining for needed supplies. Naturally, they also traded for Native Americans, sometimes taking Native Americans as their wives. There were very good reasons for a mountain man to take a native wife. A history uh, of the gentle dove explains that the women knew all about living in the wilderness, from breaking horses to camp duties to using weapons. An Anglo husband inherited his native wife's relatives, enabling him to establish further trade with his son-in-laws and his in-laws. Displays at the San Bernardino County Museum in California confirms that there were very few Anglo women during the fur trade era. Referred to as tender exotics in the early West, white women were usually married to fur company managers. Of those mountain men who took a wife, nearly half of them 
were with Indian or mixed blood women. These unions help both Anglos and Natives learn each other's language and customs. To the Natives, the marriage of their women of, to Anglos was ideal. They felt that marriage created a social bond which served to consolidate economic relationships with traders. Native Americans were already along accustomed to lending or trading their wives and daughters to Anglos for sex in exchange for goods, an ideal situation to all parties involved. But marriage secured an ongoing relationship whereas all parties, including the women, benefited from their union. Some tribes, such as the Cree, were in the habit of reserving their daughters, especially for marriage to a trader. Not surprisingly, some of the most famous mountain men in America had Native American wives. There was a Smithsonian verification that Kit Carson's first two wives, for instance, were an Arapaho woman, and a Wanabi, and a Cheyenne woman named Making Out Road. In the historical documents, Carson, as having learned several native languages, was cited. He also served as a guide, made numerous excursions across the mountains of the Rockies, and served in the military. Even more colorful to historians today was Hugh Glass, whose amazing survival of the Wicked Bear attack, portrayed by actor Leonardo DiCaprio in the 2015 movie The Revenant. Lesser known but equally important mountain men included Rocky Mountain Jim Nugent, a colorful mountain guide in Estes Park, Colorado, who also survived a bear attack but was eventually shot by his rival. Notably, too, is one of the very few mountain women, Mary Dorian. Uh, she survived the death of her fur trader, trader husband, spent a winter traveling 250 miles across the Blue Mountains with her two young sons and eventually settled down in the Columbia River area of Oregon where she remarried and had more children. Her ancestors actually settled in the Willamette Valley. Of all the mountain men who scrambled around the wilderness in the 1800s, the honor of being the very first goes to Jim Coulter. Jim Coulter uh, writes the Virginian, he was a Virginian-born trapper, enlisted with the Lewis and Clark expedition in the 1803s. And just for $5 per day per month, he quickly became known for his hunting and scouting skills. Getting paid $5 a month for scouting. And he was the best. At the end of the expedition, the Virginia Argus would later report that Coulter was awarded 1,600 acres for his work, but wasn't quite ready to settle down. Instead, he joined up with the trappers Forrest Hancock and Joseph Dixon and headed further west. Eventually, Coulter worked as a guide for the Missouri Fur Company. He is guessed to have rode alone over the estimated 500 miles in search of a Native American camps and as he spread the news of available trade, uh, a book states that in 1807, Coulter was the first Anglo man to see today's Yellowstone National Park. But his descriptions of the geothermic wonders were so vivid that few believed him. According to uh, an article in the Grand Teton, the story that Coulter's friends called his imaginary place Coulter's Hell is false. 
That term was actually applied to an area along the Shoshone River near Cody, Wyoming, not Yellowstone. Coulter eventually married, had a son, and bought a farm in Missouri, dying in the year of 1813. The conclusion of the fur trade era is attributed to three major events. A serious decline in the fur-bearing animal population, poisonous chemicals which made making beaver felt hats unhealthy, and uh, England's Prince Albert switching to wearing silk hats. Bear Lake Rendezvous also submits that killing an animal for fur became less politically correct. By 1840, says Northwest Power and Conservative Council, the fur trade was officially declining. Between 1841 and 1845, the Bay Company, for example, took in a roughly half of the number of furs the firm had normally purchased in years past. The Bay Company eventually turned to other industries such as lumber and agriculture. Other companies such as the American Fur Company, says Legends of America, went broke. Worse off were the Native Americans who were plunged into long-term poverty and consequently uh, lost much of the political influence they had once had. When traveler Rufus Sage visited Colorado's Middle Park in 1842, says a history guide, he observed there was almost no hunting activity there. Montana Trappers verifies that almost all fur trading activities had ceased by the year of 1870. The fur trade is dead in the Rocky Mountains. Mountain man Robert Newell told his colleague, Jim Bridger, and it is no place for us now, if ever it was. With the end of the fur trade, mountain men were caught in a quandary. According to a magazine, what would they do for a living? The last annual rendezvous took place in 1840. And it was just around the corner as two international treaties in 1846 and the year 1848 gave the United States official ownership of the Pacific Coast. Who better to lead immigrants west than the very men who established the trails leading there? Many mountain men, according to the history of, on the net, found new jobs serving as guides, not just as folks headed west, but also as military. After all, the men knew the best routes, where the rivers were, and the locations of unfriendly natives. Another saving grace for the mountain men seeking new jobs was the gold rush of California, 1848. History credits the discovery of the gold in the Sacramento Valley as being arguably one of the most significant events to shape American history during the first half of the 19th century. Many a mountain men were uh, trying their luck, panning for gold or working in one of the larger mines. The quest for gold soon spread all over the West, according to the Pagosa Springs Journal in the Colorado area. With mountain men turning to the prospecting and to making their way to success panning for gold, their memory was not quite faded. However, today numerous mountain men rendezvous across the West keep the history of our illustrious mountain men alive. Well, that's a little story about the mountain men, and next time we'll probably find another story concerning the mountain men. Thank you and take care. Mm-hmm.